No, I'll just write in red. <laughs> I mean, use, here, use my pen or so. I'm sure I have another one. Hey, you can put the mic closer. Scooch. Scooch. Yeah. Are we recording? Yes. But it's okay. I'm going to cut all this out. Okay. Sure. She. I'll just take snippets and make you say Michelle's the best. Michelle's the best. Oh, Michelle's the best. She is the best. There you go. She is the best. Did I tell you she's the best? Yes, I know she's the best. I love her. She's awesome. Absolutely. Well, today, Deantha, we have Valerie Condos Field with us. She's quite the woman. Oh, yeah. I love her story, Marcel, how she became a coach in gymnastics and never did gymnastics. I know. How does that happen? It's a great, great story. Uh, As she talks through that, you can see... Just the ability to learn about a new field, if you're already, because she was a professional mm-hmm. dancer, if you're already an athlete and you already understand the mechanics of that, and then you're willing to throw your heart and mind in it, how you can be great. Um, yeah. And she has some great leadership advice as she just talks through how she worked with bringing a seven-time NCAA champion. I know. Um, that's so awesome. You know, she she's quite quite the woman. Quite accomplished, yeah. Oh, her book, Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance. Oh, yeah. She yeah. was a really good interview. So let's listen to her. with Marcel Combs, my good friend and mentor. I'm Deantha Gratton, and on this podcast, she will travel a journey of leadership with each guest as she analyzes the ingredients that lead women to their current role. Marcel's goal is for you to walk away with tools to support your very own journey, no matter where your current destination is today. Welcome, Valerie, to 50% with Marcel Combs. We're so honored to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be exciting. Really, I usually begin by just saying, tell us about your journey. You can start wherever you want and just take us through what kind of brought you to where you are today. I was the head coach of the UCLA gymnastics team for 29 years, and I was the assistant coach choreographer before that for eight years. And during my time as a head coach, I experienced a lot of winning and success and won, uh, led our team to seven national championships and quite a few conference championships and all that. And um, have been inducted into the UCLA Athletic Hall of Fame and was even voted the Pac-12 Conference Coach of the Century. And the reason why I love to just share all those little bragging bubbles is because the fun fact is I've never done gymnastics. And so (laughs) I was a ballerina and somebody just introduced me uh, two nights ago for a speaking gig and they said she went from a 2-2 to seven national championships and I was like (laughs) that's great okay that's what I did um and I'm recently retired and I do a lot of speaking on leadership and coaching and the bad the good the bad the ugly and the choices that we have moving forward Whoever introduced you probably didn't really know people who were ballerinas because I I think you guys had, um, just as a ballet dancer, an unbelievable, you have to be unbelievably disciplined to do right. that. 
That's why I, I felt know. that you know. I actually did have something to offer the gymnastics team, even though I knew nothing about gymnastics. Uh, I understood the discipline that it took. I understood, plus our sport is called artistic gymnastics. And I remember one day in my deep pit, uh, ditch of insecurity that, you know, what the heck am I doing in this job? And there are so many more qualified people than I am to have this job. And there are a lot of naysayers and we didn't have the quote unquote haters in the, in the late eighties, but there were certain, cause we didn't have internet. I mean, we, excuse me, we didn't have uh, social media, but there were certainly the gymnastics community around the country was up in arms that UCLA hired a dancer mm-hmm. choreographer to be their head coach. And we were a really good team. There were, you say gymnastics has always been really good. And so um, I remember one day thinking, what do I bring to the table? Like, why should I even have this job? And one of the things that I realized was there wasn't anybody else in the country that was coaching gymnastics that had my background in dance, Mm -hmm. in performance. And I knew that I could bring their performances to life, um, especially Mm -hmm. on balance beam and on floor and teach them the, the tricks of the trade of being on stage and theater and, you know, even, even the little things like we learn early on in, in, on, in, when you're performing on stage that if you, if you're standing in the back of the wings and you peek out cause you want to see if your mom and dad are there, if you can see the audience, the audience can see you. And so don't be picking your leotard. Don't be picking your nose. Don't be doing anything that you don't want everybody else to see. And I remember sharing that with our gymnasts because they think when they're on the floor competing, if they're not on the event, nobody's looking at them. And they're doing all that stuff. They're pulling their leotards down and they're fixing their bras. And I'm like, <laughs> stop doing that. Somebody is looking at you. That That's great. Now, I just, I have to ask this. You know, you watch these movies, which is, and, and I have friends whose children did ballet. Do you really have yes. bloody toes all the time yeah. from this? Your toes are bloody. You're, you're calloused. Uh, blistered and swollen, like when you get off point. And I remember one time I took my point shoes off. I thought we were done for the day. And some big wig walked into the studio and they said, okay, put your point shoes back on. We're taking it from the top. And to shove your swollen, bloody feet back into this, like your point shoes are about two sizes smaller than your shoes because you don't want them to rub. Wow. But another way that I connected with the gymnasts is that's what their hands look like from bars. Um, they blister, wow. they callus, they bleed, all of that. So I'm like, I ha- I know that. I just had that with my feet instead of my hands. Wow. Tell us about how, how they approached you to be this coach. I was 22 years old and I was dancing professionally. And I heard, I had not gone to college yet. And I heard that UCLA needed a dance coach for their gymnastics team. And without any hesitation, I found out who the head coach was, called him up, gave him my credentials, 17 years of classical ballet training, plus a choreographer. And I'll never forget when he said, I don't have a salary to offer you, but I can give you a a full scholarship if you've not gone to school. And I was like, done and done. I it was no question. I retired from dancing and moved to Los Angeles. Um, 1982 and have been here ever since. And I remember when I told my parents 
that I was going to go to, I'm going to retire from dancing. I'm going to go to school at UCLA. And my dad's like, well, who's going to pay for it? And I said, well, I got a full scholarship. And he says, had that happen? Yeah. I said, I just called them up and asked them. <laughs> and I remember my mom was there. She said, so if you want to go to the moon someday, you're just going to call the moon and say, hey, moon, can you fly me to the moon? I said, mom, you know what? You're the one that that never instilled fear in me. So I never had this, I didn't grow up with quote unquote fear of failure. And I remember, and this is when I love to tell my story, especially with young adults that are going out and trying to find their calling in, the, in this wonderful world that we all live in, is how important it is to feel confident in making the ask. Understand what your value is understand it is unique regardless of how many people you're going up against they have different characteristics that you don't have but guess what you have different traits that they don't have and I would have my entire career I had a fabulous fabulous career in something that I never even would have considered being a coach and the whole thing happened because I wasn't afraid to make the ask and how important that ask is. You know, I was just interviewing someone on women in leadership, uh, which is, you know, obviously what I interview everyone on. But um, sh we were discussing why, why if we graduate 50% MBAs, do not 50% of those MBAs end up in CFO positions or VP of finance positions. And I worry sometimes it is in some ways a confidence level to go ahead and say, I can do this even though I'm not on paper theoretically qualified to do it. Um, and it, what a I good I think point. that you, you know, you're hitting the, a nerve with a lot of people, I've mm -hmm. spoken with um, quite a few women here at the MBA Anderson School here at UCLA, also the executive MBAs, the MBAs. And when I meet with them, one of the questions that I ask them is, how do you define success for, your, for yourself now? And these are all women in their like 40s, 50s, you know, mm -hmm. wanting to pivot a second career and all that. And so many of them kind of get frozen when I ask that question. How do you define success for yourself now? Because either they're realizing they're defining success how they defined it for themselves when they were in their 20s. And the worst part is some of these women, two of them that were in their 50s, started tearing up and crying because they realized that they were still defining success by what their mother would say, judging oh, them. Wow. And they're like, and this one woman mm -hmm. was like, oh my gosh, I'm 53 years old and I'm still trying to please my mom. And so, mm -hmm. you know, when just think about this. When you are really trying to live into who you are fully, whenever you try to please someone else or when you compare yourself to someone else or when you try to parrot or puppet someone else, all it does is clog that part of your brain that allows for clarity and creativity of who you were meant to be, what your calling is. Um, and so I, I fall into the same trap. You know, I was asked to do a, 
a leadership series for an analytics company. And like I have like data to me literally is a four letter word. <laughs> I have zero capacity with my left brain igniting. And my insecurities popped up. I'm like, how am I going to relate to these data analysts? Like, what? <laughs> and then I sat myself down and I coached myself up. But I just said, listen, you have something to offer that they don't have. And, and I have 37 years of, of experience, practical experience in leadership. All the stuff not to do and all the stuff that worked and all the stuff and where we're moving now and into our new generations and discussions of mental health and wellness and, and reframing what soft skills are and how they really are life skills and all these things, share that with them because in their daily lives, mm -hmm. they don't think about a lot of that. And so I call, I talked myself off a cliff <laughs> and I had my first meeting with 75 analysts and it was fabulous. <laughs> it was great. Uh, I bet so. You know, you led me into this question. And if you ask people, and you, you just said you're partially retired, I think you're doing a mm -hmm. whole lot of stuff. Uh, but retired from full-time coaching, let's say that. How do you define success today for yourself? I mean, what what is on the horizon for value? Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, you, you know what? <laughs> I've talked about this a lot. Nobody's ever asked me that question. Um, okay, success for me, in, I'm 63 years old. As you said, I've retired from coaching. But as the great Sherry Lansing told me, stop saying you're retired, you're rewired. I said, okay, I'm rewiring. Um, <laughs> success for me right now is to be able to, to share everything that I've gleaned in my four decades of coaching, of teaching, of being around and studying successful leaders, um, discerning the difference between winning and success. And success for me is to be able to share what I've learned in a conversational way, not in a lecturing way, and to be able to help all of the people that are in, I come in contact with, help us think about our lives a little differently. Um, understanding that life is hard, that a lot comes at us every day, and that when when life is is just suppressing us, the great reset is truly gratitude. To is to sit in a space where even if you're in the middle of the grocery store, and to just pause and think of something that I'm grateful for. And that always is the reset. And so to be able to share concepts like this, regardless of what I'm talking to teachers or data analysts or coaches or bankers, um, I did a speaking gig with storage bin people. And I was like, it's all, we're all human. Yeah. It's all the same message of how to live a thriving, successful life. Absolutely. You know, I, if standing in the middle of a grocery store and thinking of gratitude is all we have to do is dial back to COVID, <laughs> you know, which is not that. We're just walking out 100%. of that gratitude that there are things on the shelf is, right. is big. Right. 
Well, I, um, I never, and, and I you know what, Marcel, I never, ever, ever take for granted that we live in a country that allows us the freedoms of women that we have. And I start every day with that gratitude. And when I was coaching every day, when we lined up before training started, I had to just take a moment, pause, take a deep breath, and then think of one thing that you're not grateful, that you are grateful for that you have not earned. And a lot of them will say my family, my yeah. siblings. And then before we broke, we would break it out and start training. I would say, can we all just give a moment of thanks for those people that have protected our freedoms in this country as women oh, to not just mm -hmm. get an education, Absolutely. but to play sports and to go to the house, out of the house whenever we want. Let's not take that for granted. Right. Not, not covered mm -hmm. completely. Um, so many things. And I, I, I always think if we could inspire and educate women more and more, we would have less and less oppression in the world. But that's my own thoughts. You know, there's a question and we're, we're on the verge of, you know, football championships these days. So you, you had multiple cham championships. Um, how hard was it from, so you made it, <laughs> you succeeded and you, you've led this championship team. So, and then you start over the next year, you have seniors graduating and, and how do you, um, how do you take losing along with winning in this process? Cause it's, I mean, I said, even in little kids sports, it's always more fun to win than it is to lose. And you, there's lessons, don't get me wrong for both, but let's don't take the fact is it's more fun to win. So, so how do you, how, how did you team after team? And you did this mm -hmm. many, many years. Uh, take the time when it, it didn't go the way you wanted it. The first thing that we would do, it, first of all, your your question is literally my TED talk. <laughs> it asks the question, Ow. is all winning success? And um, yeah. the first thing that I would do every year is let's talk about the fact that winning is really, really fun. Okay. And that's our goal. Like our big shiny goal that's tangible is the win, is the trophy, is the ring. It's It's the bragging rights. It's all of that. The intangibles, the things that you learn through the process, is how you determine success. So as a team, let's talk about what success beyond the win is going to look like. And as it, like in our sport, we have eight months together from September and time, well, August until the um, national championship. And... Let's talk about what success is going to look like. Number one, success is going to look like leaving the national championship with no regrets. Well, what does that look and feel like as an individual, as a team? And when we can, and the whole reason that's important is because when you're defining what no regrets, what is the ingredients that are going to go into no regrets, those are a hundred percent in your control. And so you hear a lot of talk about control the controllables and don't focus on the uncontrollables. Everything that's outside of your control is a waste of energy, time, the whole bit. So to focus on other teams, to focus on the judging, to focus on whether you like the equipment when you show up at a meet, to, to focus on social media, to focus on what your parents are jarring at you about because you're not competing enough and you're not making the lineup, 
and he didn't get a high enough score. All of that is outside of our person. We call it the brew and bubble. That's outside the bubble. That's outside the things that are in control. So as a team, let's whiteboard and let's truly get clarity on the things that are in our control that will we will if we pay attention to and have the discipline to monitor on a daily basis at the end of the season in April, we will be, regardless of where we finish on the podium, we will be able to feel success in the fact that we have no regrets. And, um, you know, we all know that winning is really fun, but you actually learn the most when you don't win. And it's like I've always said, champions are made through the struggle. Champions aren't made when everything is going great in life. Um, and so in life, it's really fun when things are going great because you just need to enjoy it and breathe it in and be grateful for it. But when adversity hits, to not let it affect your life or your day in a negative way, but to really look at it as information of how is this going to help me develop and hone my champion traits as a human. Oh, absolutely. It's great. Great words of wisdom. Now, I just listened to um, or watched this weekend. Um, it's about a Christian band called Mercy Me. Uh, and it was, there's a line in the movie that he, he actually really said, and it's on his song, I Can Only Imagine, um, which was, you know, in the number one Christian song for years and years until Lauren Daigle uh, just passed that. But uh, he said, he, he's speaking to Amy Grant, and he says, uh, well, it just took me 10 minutes to write it, 10 minutes to write it, uh, the music and the words. And she said, no, it didn't take you 10 minutes. It took you a lifetime. So I think that's, you know, it's like all of the practice, all of the things they've done until that. 10 minutes of competing or hour of competing or, you know, that, that is the count. You're hundred percent correct. And that's a great metaphor and simile to all of this. Cause when you look at, when you look up the, the amount of minutes that a gymnast competes, if they're competing on, on all four events, it is like six and a half minutes. It's like, and the meet lasts two hours. But like you said, a floor routine is a minute and a half. But how many years of training and experience oh, and, and, and honing the skills of being able to be excited without feeling stressed and how to be able to call on that enthusiasm and positivity when you're not feeling your best and all of those things. That's why I've always said sport is a master class in learning life lessons that we don't learn in the classroom. And I think every child, every single child on the planet should be able to be in some type of a team sport because you don't learn yeah. resilience and how to finish and what courage is and how to be a team player and how to be selfless. And, and you don't learn all of that in a math class or English or history. You learn it by getting in the muck with, with your peers. <laughs> Getting in the muck, even yes, getting in the muck. Um, so I, I always ask people to talk about their mentors. Who, who were your great mentors, and and how did they help? Well, you? I, I am truly 
baffled how all of this happened. Um, I'm not baffled about how I got to UCLA. I'm baffled that I was asked to be the head coach. I never applied for the job. I was called in the athletic director's office and offered the job. And I, to which I reminded her, I don't know the first thing about gymnastics. And she looked at me and she said, I trust that you'll figure it out. And then after that, I start my head coaching career knowing nothing. And I was not a good leader. And I, on the leadership <laughs> barometer, I was horrible. Um, and then I meet the great John Wooden. And Coach Wooden was a basketball coach here at UCLA. Yes, he won 10 national championships in 12 years, but he also developed the pyramid of success, which I think almost every single business in the country uses as their leadership model. And he was hailed as the greatest coach in the history of sport. And I meet Coach Wooden, and not only does he become my mentor, but we become like family. He was like a grandfather to me. So, um, I had a fabulous, fabulous mentor, and it's interesting because as close as I was to coach, and I would go over to his house, we'd watch football, or he'd come to gymnastics meets, came over for dinner all the time, he never gave advice. He would always just maybe throw back a question to you, or he would say, take some quiet time, think about it, and then follow your heart. And... There were many times where I really, no, 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 coach, I really need you to tell me what to say because I got nothing. And when I got in a moment and I was in a, asked a hard question, taking his simple advice of pausing and listening to my heart always, 100% of the time, helped me produce the best response in that moment. And the, the brilliance of him not telling me or not giving me suggestions of what I could say, the brilliance of that is in those moments, I would have parroted Coach Wooden because I would have thought, well, he knows better than I do. So let's just mimic Coach Wooden. And I would not have been authentic to myself in this leadership position. And so... And when I talk about leadership a lot, it's like, you know, it's easy to read a bunch of books and then spew out the acronyms and all these things like Leadership 101. But what does it look like yeah. if you are leading from a truly authentic place of who you are, your calling, your gifts, your words, your emotions behind the words? What does that look and feel like? Because the world does not need me mimicking John Wooden. The world needs me gleaning all this information from these amazing people, leaders, and then restructuring them and re-choreographing re them as to how they land with my mind, my heart, my soul. And now just a word from our sponsor. And now back to our show. When, when you've coached, Tons and tons of individuals. Who was your, and you don't have to name names, your best um, person to ever coach? And who was your worst or hardest person? The hardest, um, there's a few of them because I coached for 37 years here. The hardest were the ones that I did not develop a relationship with. 
it wasn't about them being obstinate or them being difficult. It was either me not being able to connect with them or me not taking the time to figure out how to connect with them. Because I had very difficult student athletes on our team that questioned everything I did and came into my office and told me I was doing a horrible job. Blah, 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 blah. But I had a relation, those people, those that I had the relationship with, it was wonderful because we could sit across from each other and share, why do you feel that way? This is my intentions of why I'm doing it this way with the team and go back and forth. And then the athlete could say, but Miss Val, that's not how we're receiving it. And then it was good information for me to have. And it was a back and forth. And it was something called communication that sadly social media has taken away. So the athletes that were the hardest were the ones that I did not have a relationship with. The athletes that were, as you would say, the best, or I would, I would say the most rewarding to coach were the ones that came in and were struggling either you well 100% of the time from past experiences whether it was from family or or coaching really harsh coaching and the ones that I did develop a relationship where there was trust developed and I was able to help them motivate them to make different choices in their lives to have to live better lives and um the Caitlin Ohashi is you know I speak about her all the time. The, your audience may know who she is. Her flow routine went viral. If you have not seen it, go look it up. Kayla Nohashi, 2019. And um, she's only had, I think there's over 250 million views of this flow routine. <laughs> but Caitlin came to us and she was a little rebel. She was broken in body, mind, and spirit from her experience with the USA national team. And her freshman year, she was, you know, maybe put in maybe 60% of what she was recruited to do. And she sat in a team meeting with all of us one day and she simply unapologetically said, I just don't want to be great again. And I felt like I got sucker punched and I wanted to say that what the heck am I going to honor? Why should I honor your scholarship if you don't want to be great? Yeah. And... Then I realized, actually one of her teammates spoke up and said, Miss Val, Caitlin, everything associated with being great is misery. And she said, Caitlin grew up with a, a win-at-all-cost culture, and that winning-at-all-cost cost her her joy, not just in her sport, but in life. And so when we subscribe to winning at all cost, which we do in every avenue of life, in business and sports, parents with your children, you know, getting the A, getting into the right college, did you win? How many points did you score? All of that. When we focus on the tangibles, the win in all of those areas, the, the title, the money, the corner office, when you focus on those things that are tangible, it, it truly comes at a cost. And, and then we have to ask ourselves as teachers, parents, coaches, mentors, at what cost? And sadly, we have the research now that shows the sky rising 
reports of depression and stress and anxiety and teenage suicides. And that's not on the kids, that's on us. And so to be able to help someone like Caitlin understand that she doesn't have to stay in this cycle of misery and, and blame of the, her previous coaches and all that, that she can actually choose a different path. And it's her choice. It's not my choice. It's not her parents' choice, her boyfriend's choice. It's her choice. And I would preach to them, life is about choice and the choices you make are going to dictate the life you live. And once they, once they embrace that and understand it, oh my gosh, I have a choice. And every choice starts with my thoughts. It was so literally cool to, to visually see them blossom. And they no longer were victims in life. They took ownership and charge of their lives. In fact, another one of my athletes was, um, came forward as a Larry Nassar victim and the, USA teen physician that was accused of being a child molester, sexually abused hundreds of girls. Okay. And one of our student athletes came forward and she said, um, she told me that she was victim. She was a victim. No, she said, I was sexually abused by Larry Nassar. She said, but, and then she got adamant and she said, but I am not a victim. Okay. And I said, would you agree that you were victimized? And she thought about it and she said, yes. She says, but I refuse to let him and what happened to me affect even one day moving forward. And I said, okay, how are we doing that? She says, well, I'm talking with a counselor on campus. I've had really great talks with my parents. Um, and I'm just realizing it's something that happened to me, but that I don't have to own it. I'm sure she's turned out to be a wonderful individual. Oh, she's fabulous. <laughs> Do you know, uh, when I look at the, which I love your statement on when it all costs and it costs her her joy. Um, when you look at the kids' sports, which, you know, start at the minute they can walk and talk, um, and they you know, they have to do club and they have to do school sports and it's year round now. So there's really no breaks. And I, I know you can, if you were that good at ballet, then you can relate to this. What, what are the good things and the bad things about that, about pushing your children so hard? Um, do, do you fear burnout? You don't feel you don't feel burnout if you define success for your child. And, and this is a really great question that you're asking because we have this win at all cost culture, especially in sport with our youth and parents will do anything. So their athlete gets on that a travel team, gets a D one scholarship and all of that. And what I like to encourage parents to, to stop and think is Yes, you can, you can hammer your child, okay? There's just Google or just go on YouTube and put in car ride home. There's all this information about uh, athletes, young athletes. When they make the decision to quit, it's on the car ride home. 
because they're just getting hammered with all of these questions from the parents. Why didn't you play enough? I didn't see you giving enough effort. Why aren't you scoring more? Why, why did you pass the ball? You should have shot. How do you expect to make that travel? Like, and just, it, 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 it's horrible. Like when I pull these up and look at them, I'm just mortified. And I'm mortified that the parents, obviously they think this is great because there's a camera filming them. It's like, what? So in order for us, I mean, think about this worldwide. Think about this in business, in sport, in academia. The only way we're going to move away from winning at all cost is if parents understand what the cost is with their children. And we have to redefine success with our children. And so you should be able to have a child who's not the best on the team and whatever, but daily, as you're driving them to the soccer field or whatever, just say, hey, Kate, how are we going to get 1% better today? What does 1% look like? And it usually is, starts with the brain, my brain, okay? It usually, if, if the athlete is being honest, they'll say, okay, I have a really bad attitude when we have to run. I'm going to have a better attitude when we run. Great. Then you drop your kid off and they come back in the car and then... All you ask is, how, how was your attitude when you ran? And when you think about it, like I said earlier, those things that help your child develop into this amazing superhero, I call them, it's not something tangible. You're not asking your child how many points did you score. You're asking them something that is intangible. And that is, okay, tell me, did you help a teammate out today? And those, again, are 100% in their control. Did you help a teammate out? Did you work hard at that thing that you really don't like to do? Were you, grace, were you um, respectful with your coaches and your teammates and yourself? Okay, how much of the day were you actually less negative on yourself? Because we've got to work on that mind game, the mental game. We've got to work on that. It's 100% in your control. So you're not asking your child to do anything or achieve anything that's out of their control, including grades. The, I think the better question is, what'd you learn today? And then you get them excited about learning. So when you're asking about burnout, when you're setting the goals that are really clear and that are attainable, but that are just, you know, they need to be a challenge, a little bit of a challenge. But when you set those daily goals and then you debrief about that and then you celebrate the small victories, there is no burnout because it's a, a big refresh every day. Great. Okay. What does 1% better look like today? Valerie, have you ever hit that in coaching, that burnout? Have you ever thought, I'm just tired today? When you start the day? That's a great question. And when I decided to retire from coaching, I retired at the top of my game. We'd won another championship. I had a book coming out, the whole bit. And we were packing, like, standing room only in Poly Pavilion, which seats 13,000 people, and it was just fabulous. But I can honestly tell you, I loved every single day of coaching and I never felt burnt out mm. because I started every day with my intentions and I would look at mm. the things or the student athletes or even my coaches that I needed 
that needed more attention that day, that I needed to figure out what's going on, how can I help you, what do you want me to know? So every day I had my goal of, okay, I really need to reach out to Kyla and see how she's doing. And I had my little list, okay, make sure I get through all these things. And so my goals, just like I'm preaching here, were very clear and they were everything that was in my control. Now, I decided to retire from coaching because I was no longer inspired by the work. But it's interesting for me to be able to say I loved every moment of it. But I was no longer inspired. And part of the reason why I wasn't inspired was because I was so excited about everything I was learning about the difference between winning and success. And I had just done my TED Talk. And like I said, the book came out. And I was delving into all of that. Like, that's what really inspired me. I wanted to go learn more about leadership. And I wanted to be able to take my 37 years of practical experience and put that into a format that is going to help other people. That was inspiring. So I quit at the top of my game and um, have not regretted it one moment. Do you know, I think your next book needs to be on writing um, or maybe even another TED Talk on what should you say right. on the car ride home. Right. <laughs> you know, how can a parent inspire instead of, you know, beat their child down? And I, I, I have to know, I mean, that a lot of times parents say things that they think is 100%. inspiring, but yeah. it's... It's not really. I'm yeah. sure there are parents who don't, but but most of the parents I know want right. the best for their kids, want them right. to do the best. Um, so, you know. After I did my TED Talk, this um, Asian woman, she was from China, adorable, came up to me very respectfully and said, Miss Val, I think that people have, have often called me a toddler mom. And I said, okay. <laughs> And, and she said, when you were talking about the car ride home and saying, asking, do we ask our child about their grades? How many points did they score? She goes, I was patting myself on the back because I do all of that. I didn't realize there was another way. I was, I just hugged her. I was like, oh my gosh, if we all could be so vulnerable and humble as to and to, as to be able to self-assess the things that are not so great about ourselves, I mean, your children are so blessed to have you as a mom, as a tiger mom. <laughs> She's so cute. <laughs> so what's next for you, Valerie? What What's your, uh, your next goal or your next achievement or your, uh, where's that mountain? Yeah. Um, I teach a class climb. at UCLA on um, transformational coaching and leadership. Um, it's a master's program here. That's what the master's program is called. I teach a class on the philosophy of coaching and leadership. And I just feel like this is the whole uh, program that we offer, the master's program we offer is 100% practical to not just coaches, but to leaders. And so the next mountain that I would like to climb is to be able to put everything that I have into a format that could be like a professional development series with Miss Val. 
And that's what I'm doing with this analytics company. Mm -hmm. I have 14 sessions that I have put out and um, it's been a wonderful experience for me to just put everything that I have, go through all my journals and my books and, and chapter out these sessions. I also, something that we've not talked about, um, but for years and years and years, I've wanted to develop a, uh, an urban nutcracker. And there are a lot of nutcrackers out there. Um, there are a lot of hip hop nutcrackers out there and such. But my idea is of an urban street performance arts and X Games, skateboarding, capoeira, parkour, all that, a film. And so I've gotten a bit of interest with that. I'm developing a documentary on our last national championship because it was one of the greatest comebacks in all of sport history. And I also want to produce an animated film called Trash. And it follows the life of a little plastic doll that gets thrown away and she ends up in the Pacific Ocean with her trash tribe, um, water bottle, huh. plastic straw, plastic this, and, they, uh, and how plastic, and it follows their journey and how plastic has done so much good and now it's being so destructive. Um, and I want it to be an animated film because I think really good animated films speak to all generations. Um, You're right. I actually approached yeah. Dolly Parton's manager about her being the voice of the doll. Wouldn't that be adorable? Well, that would be I know. He fabulous. said that Dolly only does her own thing. So, but that's, <laughs> I'm just plugging away. I love her. Yeah. So I have a lot of different things on my plate that, like I said, that inspire me. And I'm really excited. Valerie, I don't think you should ever say okay. that you're retired. Okay. Let me say that. <laughs> That you you have moved from coaching to do coaching in all aspects oh, of life. Oh, that's good. So yeah, um, you know, I always try to end the session with what books or podcasts, what you're listening to or what you're reading. I know your book is Life is Short, Don't Wait to Dance. Uh, so I know everyone wants to put that on their list. But outside of that, what what are some books or podcasts or uh, audio books that you'd like to recommend? Okay, well, I'm literally, I've got my laptop stacked up on all my books for this class I'm teaching right now. Um, okay. Um, right. Anything by Brene Brown is just golden. Uh -huh. And I use her book, Dare to Lead, as the thread for the class that I teach at UCLA. Um, one book that I just picked up is, and I'm looking at it right now, is, is, is by John Maxwell. And it's called The 360 Leader. And have you yes. seen that book or read it? or? Yeah. Uh-huh. I've talked through that book. I'm a big yeah. John Maxwell fan, so uh, I know John really well, and and so I I love the three sixty leader. The three sixty leader I think is great for the reason why I'm loving it is because it talks about that middle management leader and not just the mm -hmm. leaders at the top. And so I've used right. a lot of what I'm reading from his book now um, with that, and then. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I've got so many books. <laughs> I'm just, I, I, I'm a voracious reader and I love it. When you look at my books, you think that they've been through a war zone because they're dog-eared and they're annotated and they're <laughs> highlighted and I got stickies and like I use my books 
Um, and what I've learned in, in studying great leaders is all great leaders love to read. Mm-hmm. And in whatever I in whatever modality that right. they have today. Um, so I've I've truly I, a few years ago I gave up the news and the twenty four hour news and all the talking heads. Um, and I went more to audiobooks as I mm-hmm. get dressed in the morning, as I, you know, drive to work every day. I've got a couple really different kind of things I'm listening to right now. But um, it's, you know, it, we have things so available. Um, and if people are thinking they can't afford to buy these, all these thousands of books, the public library is a crazy great source and has audio books for free uh, and other books. So it's remarkable what you can do right. online these days, even if you're at a lower level and think, I can't buy you know, six books a month. I am, I'm a terrible person in a bookstore. The bookstore is automatically going to make some money if I walk oh, in me the too. door. I, I, um, one of the books that I suggest for anybody out there that's listening, that's a parent is, um, it's the conscious parent and it is by mm-hmm. Dr. Shoot Shafali. Her last name is T S A B A R Y. Sabari. And the book is called The Conscious Parent. And that is where I kind of went to when I started talking about the car ride home and all these things, because she breaks it down very, very clearly and simply as to the questions that we ask our children. And are they coming from your own ego? Or are they coming from really wanting to help them be motivated in life to want to get the good grades, to want to be successful in sports, to want to get, you know, to, to appreciate education and all that. Are you just hammering it down their throats? Or are you motivating them to want to do this? And um, huh. that's another book that I, I, I reference a lot. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, I just want to thank you, uh, Valerie. How can people get in touch with you um, or follow you? Uh, give us the... Thank you. the where they can, they can reach, reach me at my website, officialmissbell.com. And I have been off of social media for about three years. And I love it. <laughs> and I keep thinking I should just <laughs> pop back in and just like share things that I'm doing because it might get, you know, a bigger audience, yeah. whatever. I just don't want to yet. So if you want to reach me, go to officialmissbell.com. <laughs> Well, I appreciate so much your time today and and just your willingness to be on the show. And I know people are going to just love the session. I've loved it. So I assume other people will love it too. And I just want to thank you for your time this morning with on 50% with Marcel Thank you so much, Marcel. This is so much fun speaking with you. So much fun. Thank you. Take care, my friend.